Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. We talk with musicians about songwriting, music making, and the creative process. My name is Mike, and our guest today is Nashville-based musician Joby Riccio. Joby was raised in Colorado and made her way to Boston and the Berklee College of Music before heading to Nashville. She has just released her debut album, Whiplash, on Yep Rock Records, It's an excellent album. In fact, I was just now reading a review of the record in No Depression Magazine. The reviewer says that when Joby sings, she hands you her whole heart. I think that's pretty much on target. As you will hear, Joby is a very thoughtful, deliberate songwriter. and She uses her impressive vocal talents and the creative arrangements and productions on this record to lay out some personal truths in her songs in ways that are both relatable and highly entertaining. Joby is still a relatively young artist. We hear that many of these songs on this record had their origins in her Berkeley years, and at least in one case, right in the classroom. This is an impressive debut, and I really look forward to seeing in what directions this talented, creative musician goes next. Quick side note, the Jonathan Richmond song that both Joby and I kind of mutually freak out about in the conversation is called That Summer Feeling, one of my all-time favorite songs. You should check it out. It pairs well with Joby's opening track, Summer. Oh, also, have you signed up for my newsletter called Hey, How's It Going? yet? If not, I am offering a special deal. If you sign up now, the newsletter is free, and this offer will only be available forever. So you should sign up today. Issues come out supposedly every month or so, and I write about music stuff, recommendations, observations, ruminations. You can sign up at tellyouwhatpodcast.com. Don't delay. Quick shout out to Taylor Perry at Shorefire Media, who helped put this conversation together. Much appreciated. All right, so now please enjoy this Tell You What conversation with Joby Riccio. I'm just not that sweet, but my heart gets scared and sometimes shows its teeth. If I'm yours, I will love you honestly. If I'm yours, I give you up. All right, Joby Riccio, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to meet with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. You're at your home in Nashville. Do I have that right? Yeah. And as we are recording this, it is July, the month of July. But when this episode is out in the world and people are hearing it, your debut record, Whiplash, will be out in the world. Exciting times ahead, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just got excited hearing you say that, like heart (laughs) heart skip. Ooh, exciting. (laughs) Excellent. Speaking of exciting times, 
now in July, we're back in July, you are headed off soon to play Newport Folk Festival, right? As the winner of the John Prine Songwriter Fellowship. Yes, that is correct. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, uh, truly unbelievable honor. Yeah. I mean, Newport is a pretty fantastic festival for someone that makes the music you do to be a part of. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's been on my radar for so long. And so many of the artists that I've loved and looked up to from really all decades have had a part or been a part of Newport at some point. So it's 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 truly a dream, dream come true. And to to be there with this honor with the Prime family and this it's just like it's truly surreal. I grew up on John Prine's music and um, he was such an early influence of mine and I still return to his catalog and it makes me think of my dad. It makes me think mm. like of home and just like such a, it fills me with the most like warm, incredible feeling just thinking about all of this and thinking about being at this festival I've always dreamed of uh, and, yeah. and being there under, under this, these amazing pretense or pretenses, I guess. Is that the word? It is now. Context under this there you amazing go. context. <laughs> All right, that's great. We're going to circle back in a few minutes to hear more about your home and your background and creative path and see where that takes us. But I want to open up by talking about one of your songs. For me, it's you. When I saw you perform at Folk Alliance in Kansas City earlier this year, you completely won over a full room. Excellent show. But when you sang this one, For Me, It's You, you could hear a pin drop. That crowd was in the palm of your hand. It was a great performance of a great song. It's a true, like, old-school country type of song, right? You do that great country song, lyrical thing, where you use the title as the the tagline and kind of shift the meaning of the line over the course of the song, right? Eventually revealing the lonely heart message of the song, right? It starts with, everyone has a person they sing their love songs to. For me, it's you. And by the end, it's, everyone has a person who will never feel the way they do. For me, it's you. It is so good. What can you tell us about the writing of this one? Mm. I studied at Berkeley School of Music for college. I studied songwriting, and we were learning about verse-refrain-style songs, um, right. A-A-B-A, uh, which is the format of this song. And we were talking about, one of my professors was talking about how you can think of verses as boxes. And, you know, verse one is this refrain line at the end of the box verse two is this refrain line bridge verse three and recoloring that um and i was really excited and stoked on that um and i i had just come back from this this festival fresh grass where i was uh jamming and playing these songs with some friends of mine who were uh playing at the festival as well and we were playing a bunch of old country songs in this old house uh in Western Mass, and it was just, I was just so inspired by these old school heartbreak country songs um, that I was hearing at the time, I was listening to a lot of George Jones and Willie Nelson. And just, yeah, we were just trying to be as sad as possible, honestly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I have always, I've always loved getting together and, and just singing great yeah. songs with people. And um, I was sort of a burst of inspiration after that and you know just some stuff that just yeah like dealing with this exact situation of like 
being interested in someone and like really knowing that they they were not interested in me back and and I thought of you know like that is a universal experience like I say in the song everyone has a person who has not felt the way that they do um yeah and I wrote that down in my notes in class as we were going over this assignment this is so like academic (laughs) not like a very like well i wanted to get into this academic aspect later so i'm glad we're, i'm glad you're bringing it up yeah yeah like it wasn't just like <laughs> oh the candle was lit and i was writing my like swan song like it was very much like i was sitting in class i had been given an assignment and i was already like subsisting on a heavy diet of these styles of songs um yeah and and swimming in this emotional experience so it really just came out and, and I wrote, yeah, I wrote down that line of everyone has a person who will never love them back. And then that became everyone has a person who will never feel the way they do. No one makes me sunny or paints my world warm like you. When you catch my eye, I wish you'd catch it a little more. All right, let's back up a little bit now. Talk about your musical background. You grew up in Colorado, right? Yes. So was music always present in your life, in your home? Was it always a big part of your your home and community experience from when you were younger? I would say so, yes. Um, Neither of my parents are musicians, but they definitely always had music in the house, playing on, you know, the stereo system or the radio in the car and... I just was obsessed with music. I was obsessed with CDs and listening to CDs that were such a, so funny now that CDs have taken such a backseat because they were such a huge formative part of my musical upbringing, like stealing CDs out of my sister's room, you know, stealing Cheryl Crow's greatest hits from her and like a Coldplay CD, like not always the coolest things, but things that definitely informed, uh, my desire to write songs and and share my voice with people and yeah and like sitting in my room for hours listening to Patsy Cline's greatest hits and Leanne Rhymes greatest hits. I had a lot of greatest hits CDs it turns out uh and like I just spent hours like trying to figure yeah. out how they sang like that and and then how later how songwriters wrote like that um and definitely the music of my of my parents generation really was influential on me you know my dad uh introduced me to bruce springsteen and john prine and my mom emmy lou harris linda ronstadt um the eagles all of these all these musical loves that definitely i think you can influences you can hear in my music um yeah that's that's pretty good raw material yeah <laughs> so when did you start singing or making music yourself i started singing when i was probably six I didn't know what I was doing and I spent all this time just locked in my room like belting along to these songs to the point where 
my mom was like, you're going to blow out your voice and, and put me in voice lessons pretty young at like eight or nine, I think. Oh, okay. And I learned how to rain, how to rein it in, <laughs> which I yeah. think is real. It was really good call on her part. Cause I was obsessed with this. Like I would have sat in my room and I would have destroyed my voice. Like <laughs> I yeah. was determined to learn. That's, that's pretty singing. young for voice lessons. Your mom was, mom was on top of the game. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, like, a lightness with it. Like, you're interested in this. It wasn't some sort of weird, like, star search momager thing. Like, I think she genuinely was just like, I don't want you to, you, you're so interested in this. Like, this is, you spend all of your time doing this. Like, singing and, and entertaining and yeah. listening to music. Like, this is, this is all you do. <laughs> So, like, I think, yeah, both my parents were have always been so supportive of my music. Um, and then I, I started playing guitar when I was, I think, 11 years old. Um, and I was in elementary school. We had orchestra, and I joined orchestra in fifth grade, and I played violin, but I, I was not great. Um, but there were some guitars in the orchestra room, and I was like, man, I really want to learn how to play guitar. I want to I want to learn how mm. to, you know, sing and play my own songs and like Taylor Swift's CD was in my rotation, her, you know, self-titled and it was just so confessional and so like relatable to my little child heart and I was just like, I have something to say and I need to say it. My sister had this little toy <laughs> blue guitar uh, that had three strings on it and I would steal that thing out of her room and just bang on it and then play it really quietly and just experiment with it. And like the thing wasn't in tune. Like I, I was just, I was just desperate for it. And, and eventually, um, then eventually I got my own guitar and started taking guitar lessons. Are you saying that you were picking up that plastic guitar and turned to that because you felt you had something to say, like writing songs and getting mm. your thoughts out there, not just to play the Taylor Swift song? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to learn those songs because I wanted to write something that I thought was so that made me feel so emotionally understood and so big. You know, I, I feel like I was yeah. like many, many creative people. I was this little kid with all these big emotions and like no way to express them besides like, yeah, just like angsting around and <laughs> looking for some sort of outlet for that um and i feel like music i really found it there and and then it became i spent hours once i got a guitar in my room after school writing trying to write something good and it took yeah. me years <laughs> to write anything that i it felt like was worth showing anybody um yeah i've always been a bit of a perfectionist and very hard on myself and i, I still struggle with that but i think it also allowed me when I was younger to really like focus on like, okay, what makes a good song and what, what, yeah. Like think, mm -hmm. think actually about like, what am I, are these lyrics good? Is this, is this good? You know, like developing that editor voice. Yeah. So finding your way to Berkeley college of music makes perfect sense. Given what you've said, you wanted to be a student of music and songwriting and find the way to write the good songs. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say that we have had some of your fellow Berkeley alums on here. We had the Lula Wiles people, Western Den. We had Damn Tall Buildings on here. And as this is a songwriting-focused podcast, I like to talk about the academic 
experience of songwriting. You kind of got into it earlier when you talked about the, the song for me, it's you. Can you talk about your experience at Berkeley in this sense that the classroom experience of learning about songwriting and creativity and, and what you took from it? I feel like I was simultaneously so excited and so terrified of it. For so long, I had wanted guidance. I had wanted feedback and just was, you know, pouring my heart and my time into these songs and just not not feeling confident or, you know, like sure enough to show them to anybody. And finally, I had this forum um, and, and structure with which to do that with and and then, of course, like I, I struggled a little bit there with how many songs I had to write all the time. Dep- it really depended on the teacher. Yeah. Um, but I had one teacher who was like, you need to be writing one to two songs a week. And I was like, what? That's too much. And honestly, like, that's just not how I organically write. There are so many writers out there, so many of my friends who write, who can write that. And I at this time in my life, like, never say never. It's just not. I'm a slow writer. I take my time. Sometimes things come out all at once in that, you know, lightning bolt of inspiration moment that you hear people talk about. But usually I'm just chipping away at the marble. I'm, I got something on my notes app on my phone. I'm walking around. I'm going to the grocery store looking at the verse like, I don't know, listening to my voice memo, like trying to trying to really get it right and take my time and not rush myself. And then I, there I was in this like structured environment where it's like, you have a deadline. And those deadlines were really helpful and allowed me to write so many of the songs on this record. I mean, this record is very much like the culmination of all my experiences in that time of my life. And also so many of my songwriting assignments, like it feels, uh, it feels not cool to admit that, but it's just true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good advertisement for Berkeley. Uh, yeah, well, it's not a it's a it's not a perfect institution by any means, but I had really, really great mentors, um, and I, I think that I also was just really determined to make it work for me. Like I was determined to get every drop of everything that I could get out of that school. It was so expensive, and and that was so stressful, and. Yeah, I, I, you know, went to the chair of songwriting and told her like, hey, I I, like, I'm struggling to pay for this school. Like, I'm really invested in being here. I'm really invested in the songwriting program. And she, her name's Bonnie Hayes. And she absolutely heard me out and, and kind of took me under her wing and really like, was a voice and an advocate of mine, as was one of my professors, Mark Simos, who was sort of the like roots songwriting professor um he's old-time fiddle player and a great songwriter who wrote for Alison Krauss and like definitely one of my first advocates at that school and yeah between the two of them like I I found people in my corner but it was hard depending on what you're going through at the time and your financial situation like it is it is it is not a perfect fit for a lot of people um and I struggled yeah. I struggled to stay there for sure um because it's so intense but um I was granted a scholarship towards the you know end of my time there that really allowed me to finish and and not be stressed about that stuff yeah. and just focus on on finishing and writing. You um, talked about this a little bit when you talked about having to write a lot of songs. On this new record, we're going to talk about your process here a little bit. You have written all these songs yourself, right? And, and you talked about how you're a slow writer and 
be a bit of a perfectionist. Is there a point at which in your process at which you will bring songs to other people for feedback? Or do you trust yourself to know when something is worthwhile? Mm. I will usually at this point always bring my songs for feedback because now I have people, you know, like I'm talking about these experiences as a young kid, like, I don't know who to play this for. Um, besides, I, I played them for like my childhood best friend, but she was just so excited about it. I, I feel like she <laughs> wasn't always the most uh, discerning. And going to Berkeley and having that forum of professors and other students to give me feedback, some of which I absolutely just rejected, by the way. Now I have this great community of friends and, and songwriters that I can call upon. Um, I definitely pretty much always take my songs to my friend Liv Green. She is a freaking master songwriter and also the same age as me and, and went to New England Conservatory Conservatory in Boston. And so we got really close in college. Um, yeah. So I definitely think that I, I rely upon my community. Um, I also always send my songs to Jesse Tim, who is my friend, who is one of the co-producers and the lead arranger on Whiplash. Um, they are a very close friend of mine and they've been so intimately familiar with my music for so long because we are such good friends and like they've worked on these arrangements um, with my album even during college, um, we were kind of working on these things together on some of these songs, um, like the song Homesick. They came up with that arrangement when we were, I think, sophomores in college, which was quite a while now. Um, and that's, you know, we tweaked it and they changed some things, but that's ultimately the arrangement we used on the album. So I will also, yeah. you know, send them my songs more from a perspective of like, what do you think of the chords? What do you think of the harmony? They're, they're very, they studied jazz composition and arrangement and have like just a total ear and a knack for melody and harmony and chords. And like, and I also just trust them to be like, yeah, this is a good, this is a banger or this just, this is, this is whatever, you know? Okay. Let's talk about this new record whip, whiplash. You brought it up first. I need to tell you a little story. To prep for this interview, I was listening to this record last week while I walked to my office. It's about a 20 minute walk. I looked up at one point and I did not know where I was. I realized I had walked about a half mile past my office. I was so into the record, I got lost in my own town. Wow. So, I think that's a good sign. Oh, yeah. Makes me feel so good <laughs> to hear. <laughs> so let's talk about how this record came about. This was kind of an unorthodox path to getting this record finished, right? It wasn't just going to a studio for a week and get everything down. Tell us how this happened. Yeah. Um, so this is my first record. And it's so funny because this is kind of the only experience of making a record I've known, but it is completely unorthodox. So I won a contest that allowed me to go and use recording time basically at a studio, Citizen Studios in Asheville, North Carolina. And I won that back in 2019. And the pandemic hit. And then everything went on pause and and me and gar ragland who is the person who runs new song the contest that i won and runs the studio and was one of the producers on the record we sort of just put it on pause and then eventually he circled back with me and was like hey let's make this record and was really encouraging and, and i was like yeah i should make the record like we'll find a way to do it and so in september of 2020 i flew out to Asheville, north carolina to start tracking the vocals and the guitar. 
with just just me and Gar, and those are all the vocals and acoustic guitar and the electric guitar lead or the the riff that you hear on Sweet. That's me on electric. That all was done in that session, and then a few of the drums and uh, one of the bass tracks that made it on, and that was all we had. <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, we, we did some back and forth. I went back to Colorado. I was working as a ski instructor at the time. Hmm. So, you know, I went back. Wow. I did my ski instructor job teaching little baby children skiing and, and listening to my mixes in the car on the way there. Just like um, my friend Jesse, who I mentioned earlier, Jesse Tim, uh, they I knew that I wanted them to be involved in the album from the beginning. So I introduced them to Gar also yeah like they got sent the roughs as well and and started writing the uh arrangements and they they really worked on the the string parts and the woodwind parts but also had such a hand in like you know helping me come up with the drum parts and things like that so yeah it was very like piecemeal very back and forth kind of things and then we sort of decided like okay here are the players we want on the record um and started getting those things remotely tracked we had you know two of my friends in Brooklyn, Alex Spiegelman on Woodwinds and Mike Robinson on pedal steel and electric guitar track from their remote studios in New York. I had a friend in Texas, Sophie Patricus laid on some bass. Uh, Jesse went into the studio in Northern California where they're from, where they, they laid down some drums um, on the record. Like we, we had things coming from all over the place um, and all yeah. coming together. I saw you had Josie Tony on there yeah. too, right? I saw her play with Sierra Farrell. She is so yeah, great. Yeah, she is. She's incredible. I have known her for years. Um, yeah, I met her. She used to live in Denver uh, and was like one of the, you know, kind of older female mentors that I had in the roots and bluegrass scene there. I hired her to play fiddle with me and my band in college. And so it only, it, you know, felt right to have her come and play these parts that she had already been playing. Interestingly enough, she also did all the strings. So Jesse wrote all these parts for one fiddle, but the way that they arranged them, like the, the strings on Lonely Tonight that you hear, that's actually just Josie nine times playing wow. through Jesse's parts. And Josie has a, a background in classical music as well as fiddle. Like it's just a world, world-class player and can really do anything. And, and so that was a remote session that happened in Nashville that I FaceTimed into. Um, yeah. So given the way these songs came together over this period of time and remotely and with different players, did some of them maybe end up in places that you would not have predicted at the start in terms of arrangement or production? Or did you have the vision for these songs from the beginning and it just took time to put it together? I think it's a combination of both things. I think we all wanted the record to be cool and interesting and dynamic just beyond, you know, the standard Americana record um, format. That's yeah. And, and Gar and I talked a lot about that. And Jesse has always challenged me too. like when we were in college, I remember them saying to me, like, I was really digging into my classic country thing. I wanted to be the front person of a honky tonk band. And they were like, you've written all these really beautiful, sensitive songs. And just call me when you want to make something like Anais Mitchell, because I know that that day will come. And they were right. <laughs> and so I did. And, you know, and, and that is such a yeah a key component of Whiplash is wanting it to be more than just a Americana country, you know, clean cut, recorded to tape type record. Um, and I think 
another person who's super instrumental in making it sound so interesting and, and so big and, and, and new is Isaiah Beard, who is the third producer who we brought on um, for the very last sessions. We recorded Mellotron, we recorded all the ear candy stuff that you hear. Um, at one point I play a water glass in a song that then Isaiah ran through, uh, you know, a plugin on Ableton or Pro Tools. And Isaiah is like a master, a master of textures and- Okay, let's talk about the water glass. Were you, <laughs> how, how were you making the sound with the water okay, glass? Okay, so the water glass is just a layer on the song Kinder to Myself. I was listening yeah. to Blake Mills' uh, Hey Ho and, not Hey Ho, Hi Ho, Blake Mills' Hi Ho on the plane there. And there was this cool woodblock sound with a bunch of reverb on it. And I was like, I want to put that into this song somehow. So we tracked me hitting a woodblock that Gar had in the studio. And then someone suggested, what if you hit this water glass with a mallet too? And so we layered the water glass sound with the woodblock and you can hear it, it's tucked way in the back with a lot of beautiful reverb mm. on it in certain moments throughout that song. Yeah. Let's let's talk about some of these songs specifically. They're all so great, it is easy to get lost in them, as I did. <laughs> um, the opener, I want to talk about the opener, Summer. It was hard to pick, but may, this might be my favorite track on the record. I love the variety of songs on the record. You talked about your purposefulness in doing that. This is a great example. The production... Production here is absolutely perfect. The swirling kind of circular guitar patterns are so cool. Adds to that summery feel of the song. I love the line, something's bound to happen, ain't that summer's guarantee. It gives us both that anticipation and regret vibe of mm. summer. Is that kind of what you're going for here? Absolutely. It was really important to me to mirror that sort of endless feeling of of longing and hope and expectation and disappointment that I definitely feel like I experienced more so in my adolescence, but I, it still creeps in, you know, in my older years. I'm not that old. I'm 25. <laughs> I got bad news for you. It never goes away. Yeah, well, look at Jonathan <laughs> Richmond, that summer feeling. You can exactly. I love I that love song. I love that song too. And I actually heard that song after <laughs> I'd written that song. And I was like, okay, so this is a universal experience. Thank God. Uh, because at yes. first I was like, I, I actually have that very song queued up to play at my open mic next week. So it's funny you bring that I up. I <laughs> love Jonathan Richmond. He's playing at Newport. I'm going to be front row. I'm so excited. Oh, that's great. Um, but yeah, so it was really important to have the production match that. And Isaiah Beard, my friend who we brought on, did an incredibly artful, masterful job of just creating moments within the song of, you know, like, okay, we're going to take out the drums here and and have a, a hit here and, and make the reverbs really big when you sing the word, nah, and like, just have it feel like we'll track a million awes, like in the vein of an Aoife O'Donovan track or like Golden Hour by Casey Musgraves. Like, we'll just like make this thing feel like a hot, soupy, emo summer day. <laughs> And the silvery sound 
talked about the guitar on this track. Can you talk about your guitar style on this song, Summer, on some of the others like Whiplash? It is so great, kind of that rhythmic picking style. Kind of reminds me of um, Riley Walker. Do you know him? He's from Chicago. Fingerstyle player. Um, you should check him out. He's kind of like John Fahey and William Tyler kind of guy. He's really good. And some of your stuff reminded me of him. Um, can you talk about how you developed your style and what your influences were on the guitar? So I started out learning guitar to accompany my voice. And that was my approach to the guitar. And then I came into bluegrass through learning the mandolin. And then I really got into bluegrass guitar um, through a teacher that I had in Denver uh, who was introducing me to cross-picking and all these different styles. And I discovered Molly Tuttle when I went to college and spent hours like pouring over videos of her playing bluegrass guitar and just how like melodic and, and artful and beautiful her picking style was. And so I'd say her for sure. Yeah. And then I also was in the deepest whole of like Joni Mitchell guitar stuff possible in college. Um, I, I took a guitar class that was dedicated to the guitar styles of Joni Mitchell. And we played in all these crazy open tunings and that just opened up a world of possibility for me. So I feel like it was the marriage of like that cool, interesting, lyrical, um, cross-picking guitar style, like Molly Tuttle and Tony Rice. And, and I never went so deep with bluegrass guitar, but I definitely I hear that influence in there in my playing and then and then yeah. that open tuning kind of kooky crazy chord variation of like Joni Mitchell and yeah. Yeah. Well it's great. I mean I saw you play live but on the electric, but then to hear you play in the acoustic on the record, it really is it really works so yeah. well. Um let's take the song Lonely Tonight. Another great production, cool percussion, shuffle behind it. I really like that kind of country politan kind of sound you got going with the strings. Yeah. You mentioned how that came together with Josie Tony. Lyrically, this one, like a lot of these songs, are personal stories. They seem like songs from your truth, right? But you do a great job of making the messages have that universal appeal. You kind of hit on this earlier, but maybe you could talk about this song in that context of trying to balance the personal and the universal in your songwriting. Mm. This song I wrote about a very personal situation I had that I think that I, yeah, I was like sort of trying to date somebody, but it wasn't very serious. And it was, you know, both of us lived in different places and Mostly, mostly this is a song, the more that I get distance from it, that whole situation, and also just play the song through the years. This is more of a song about my myself, I think, feeling disconnected from myself just as much and, and being like, I'm feeling really lonely, but I am also not providing myself with the comfort and security and assurance of just being with myself like I'm relying on this other person who is not capable of giving me this and I'm, I'm in this like pining yearning pattern that I feel like I really found myself in in a lot of uh, romantic situations in my 20s and I think that that's just like an experience a lot of people have had at some point in their life and it, it is hard for me because I've always loved personal and confessional writing you know since I was a young child hearing Taylor Swift and and Joni Mitchell 
but understanding that like the personal is universal always yeah not being afraid to let people into my my bedroom and my my living room or wherever i'm i'm writing from and actually really wanting that connection yeah. and but and there's still a, a craft to it here of of not being too specific in your personal story so that it is relatable do you think about those things or or is it more of a natural output from you i i do think about that i want especially this song it's pretty, it can be, it's a little open-ended. Uh, it's a little less specific. Uh, I think there's a, a beautiful art, and this is something that Mark Simos, one of my mentors, really challenged me to do, which is marrying lines that both feel conversational and lines that are image-based and, like, very hyper-specific, like, really zooming in on specific imagery and using the five senses, but also, like, things that people say in conversation or thoughts that they have in their head. I think like that's great lyric writing there. And, and also like not being so vague as to losing the emotional thread, but also if you want to be hyper-specific, I mean, I also love writers who are hyper-specific, like, and there are times when I definitely fit that mold, but, but leaving some room just for myself too. And, and just to protect my own, heart too in that way of like not giving away and not getting up on stage and reading my diary in its entirety i only do that a little bit (laughs) only half of it guys you only get half of the journal (laughs) it's been a long empty day nothing much here to thing I noticed and really liked about the songwriting on this record, there are a number of these songs that take us on a lyrical journey. The songs finish in a different emotional place than we start. We talked about For Me, It's You earlier, but the ending sections to a lot of these songs are so interesting. Are you working on this consciously when you write songs to have that strong finish or take the story to the end and bring us somewhere? I had another mentor of mine, John Randall, say something to me when I was like 15 or 16, which is like, he he's a country writer. And, and, you know, obviously, I've always been interested in country music. And he was saying like, great country lyricism, and just great lyricism in general, twists some twists words, and it, it gives you a new way to say something you've already heard. Um, and so I think I'm always mm. just looking for that, like, what is my unique thumbprint lyrical thumbprint on this experience on this image on this feeling 
And so I'm not always so much thinking of like, what's the arc of the song while I'm writing it, but definitely when I'm editing it and thinking a lot about like the purpose of a bridge too. But yeah, like thinking about the emotional journey, I would say that's something that comes out a little bit more in the editing editing world um then then yeah. the early baby stages i'm usually just so zoomed in on line by line section by section right that's great i want to talk about one more song if we can i i mentioned that i love the variety of songs on this record here we have the final number one last time mm. it's kind of like a jazzy piano ballad right i i gonna assume you wrote this one on guitar but it sounds so great with the piano how did this come about I wrote this song to challenge myself to use jazz voicings. And also I had been listening a lot to this version of tomorrow night, the like blues and jazz standard that Patty Griffin did on one of her records. And I was studying at a jazz school um, and learning all these voices and, and, hanging out with many of my friends who were jazz guitar players um, and who I would be like, Hey, can you show me how to play that chord and do sort of like a skill swap thing? And one of my good friends was really digging into like Western swing. And so she would kind of show me some of these shapes as well. Yeah. I just, I just became enamored with the idea of using different colors and jazz was nothing I ever grew up with. Um, So I was listening to more jazz than I ever had in my life studying at Berkeley um, just just because they were in our assignments, but also because I was seeking it out and I was interested in this new music that was like pretty unfamiliar to me. And yeah, the piano on that song was tracked by my friend's dad, Alan Pasqua. Um, I became friends with his daughter. We went to this music camp together when we were both in high school and and Alan is just a masterful jazz pianist and when Jesse and I were talking about the arrangement of this song, they were saying like, we want to have like a show showcase instrument moment in this song. And it is me. I'm playing an, an old I think It was from like 1915 arch top that gar sourced from somebody in, in uh, Asheville that I'm playing yeah. the guitar part on. And then um, Alan recorded remotely from his home studio in Los Angeles. He recorded that piano part and just, he, I think he did that thing in literally one or two takes. And it was like, great, <laughs> Alan, this is perfect. You are a true master. You play with Bob Dylan. Like, this is, you are the guy. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for doing this for your, like, you know, daughter's friend. <laughs> uh, and just, yeah, he's just a sweet, sweet guy, too, and was stoked on the song. And I, I thought that it made a great closing track of just, I picture this uh, bar in Boston, the Lizard Lounge, which has got this like red lighting uh, to it. And it's in this basement and they don't smoke indoors, but if they could, you know, like smoky bar kind of atmosphere of us playing that song and, and letting everyone go out into the night afterwards. That's sort of my vision for this song and, and how it ends the album. If I could see you one last time What difference would it make Sometimes love is what we want Sometimes it just takes 
used up almost as much of your time as I'm going to let myself, Joby. But I, I want to ask a, a one big picture question here, if we can. Yeah. It is wonderful to hear you talk about your songwriting and the way you approach your craft. You are so studied and thoughtful about your process. I want to know if there's something that when you think about your creative process that you are trying to get better at at this point, or maybe something you have gotten better at or something you're working on. Mm. Setting deadlines and finishing songs oh. for sure. Yeah. I can be so precious and obsessive and perfectionistic. Sometimes I just stand in my own way. I mean, recently I've been challenging myself to finish ideas I've had for the last year and a half. And it doesn't have to be that way, but also sometimes life gets in the way and you're just not able to finish the song or you're not meant to finish the song. But yeah, I, I have been challenging myself as I'm entering this experience of releasing my first record and being so like plugged into the industry for the very first time, releasing it with a label, taking on management, all these things that have happened for me in the last like two years remaining creative and remaining open and remaining being a mentor to myself and being like, Hey, just finish a song. It's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be Joni Mitchell, Amelia, every single time you write a freaking song, like it's not <laughs> going to happen. And that is a crazy, like, yeah, like not holding myself to this impossible standard of perfectionism that sometimes can be just my own trap. Yeah, so just just finishing the damn songs and and finish finish the damn songs. Yeah, staying creative. Yeah, that's great. Well, Joby, congratulations on creating such a wonderful debut record. Mm. You should be quite proud of what you've done here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to talk with me today and have fun at Newport. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. This is really sweet. I loved this this whole conversation. Thank you. Sometimes love gives what we want And sometimes